Good morning, good morning, good morning. Let's bring it in. Try to get started. You can finish your, you can finish your sentence, Al. Oh, two more to go. All right. Well, the title is up there before you, so we're going to kind of jump in where we left off last week. I'll, I'll give some introduction here in a moment, and then uh, we'll keep moving along. See some more people coming in. I'll wait a minute here. All right, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll jump in. <clears throat> well, Lord, I do thank you this morning uh, once again. As we even talked about last week, we, we're gathering here as this community to worship you this morning, Lord, and we thank you that, for who you are, that you've chosen us before the foundations of the world, that you've opened our eyes to your realities. And so even this morning, as we look more deeply into your word, Lord, this wonderful thing we call the gospel, uh, I pray, as Paul wrote, that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that we would see that we would really see, Lord, and it would stir us individually and give us vision and, and uh, insight to our world and our calling and our purpose. And so we thank you this morning. Thank you for your word, for once again having some somewhat of clear minds this morning to some degree that we can hear and we can interact. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. <clears throat> so last week... Uh, we began thinking through this thing called the gospel, and I want to just kind of touch on a couple things again, some, a couple that I touched last week as way of introduction. Let's see, here's this on. There we go. So I started last week just mentioning Paul, and if you remember when he went to Rome, um, he actually said to them, he said, so for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. So he went to Rome, and he's writing to Christians this incredible treatise, this theological treatise, his great work of the book of Romans. And he's saying, I want to come to you and preach the gospel to you. And so it's a similar thing this morning. There's a sense in which I, I, I could ask each of you, what is the gospel? And we would have a pretty good sense of it, probably most of us. But there's a sense in which we need to continue to preach the gospel and speak the gospel and think the gospel. Peter did something similar. I will always be ready to remind you of these things. And it's like you can't, you can't get past this. You have to go over it and over it and over it. And so when Paul came to Rome, he did that. And as I mentioned last week, you think about where Rome was. Rome was considered the center of the world. And he knew strategically, I get this thing there, it's going to spread to the whole world. That's what it did. And so as we uh, jump in this morning, we're coming back to the gospel. And I, I touched on a number of other things I'm going to skip through here real quick. I did talk about this idea of the proclamation. If I back up here a little bit. This was, this, this was known as the kerygma. There was this proclamation that went out. <coughs> and I spoke last week about heralding, you know, standing on a street corner, heralding. Here's this news. Hear ye, hear ye. There's this proclamation that God has given us. And we see it in 1014. How can, they, how can they hear unless a preacher comes and heralds to them, preaches to them, proclaims to them? Mark 16, 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel, kerygma, proclaim this news to the whole world. And then last week I touched on this, and I had a couple questions afterwards. I don't really, again, want to spend time on it this morning too much. But this idea of knowledge, and as I mentioned last week, I mean, you would have to have 
I mean, you could take an entire semester and talk the issue of knowledge. It's a big issue of our culture. And um, minimally, you'd have to take one whole session. And I took about five or 10 minutes, not even that, threw it out there. And of course, it raised more questions maybe than, than it was worth, not worth. It would have been like, oh yeah, it brings up a bunch of things about knowledge. But I just want you to understand, when you're reading through the scriptures, okay, you'll see this a lot. This idea of this knowledge that was given to us from God, the message preached to save those who believe. And Romans 16, 25, uh, now to him who's able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. And when we go with this gospel, we are taking knowledge that God has given us. We are preaching the message of Jesus Christ. We're saying the very things that Jesus Christ said. And I hope that stirs us. <clears throat> But this is knowledge from God, and again, I could say a lot more. I gave the example last week. I just want to reiterate it one more time because I wondered a couple of the questions. I thought, oh, I wonder if they got what I was trying to say. I gave the example of Oprah. Remember last week I gave the example of Oprah, and she comments to this woman in the crowd about God. And my point quickly was if that was about cancer or some other area of life, Oprah probably wouldn't have weighed in because she would know, hey, I, I'm not a cancer doctor. I can't speak to cancer. And the question is, is why does Oprah think that she can speak about God? She doesn't have a theology degree. I'm not even picking on her, but why does she think she can? That's what I want you to catch. She thinks she can because she doesn't understand that there's actual knowledge about God. She thinks she's weighing in like your favorite ice cream or, you know, I like this kind of a car better than that kind of a car. Do you understand? She doesn't think of things of God as real knowledge. And we as Christians, who our eyes have been opened to the word of God, are saying, no, this is real knowledge. <clears throat> and my quick statement last week to you was, this even happens in our midst sometimes. Christians will get together, and again, over my many years of ministry, you'll get together with a bunch of Christians, and you'll be opening up the word of God that's real knowledge, and somebody will say, well, I think it means this. And I think it means this, and I think it means this, and I'm going, you know, you want to appreciate that, that people have this insight, but the fact is, is there is actual knowledge there, something is actually being said, and it isn't up for grabs. Now, we could say, you know, this is how it applies in my life, how it stirred me in my life towards this thing or that thing, that's fair ground, but this, this idea of knowledge even impacts us sitting here because we breathe the air, we drink the water of our culture, and sometimes we don't even realize it. And so we just need to be aware of that. So I wanted to emphasize that when we come to this issue of the gospel, this is knowledge from God. And so we need to nail it down and say, what is God actually saying? Um, let me skip through. I want to get down to where we want to go. So we went in, then I said, we're going to spend a few weeks talking about these key components in understanding of the gospel. And there's fundamentally four key components that we're going to nail down. And we, we, we nailed down this one last week. And the first one is the personal... Each one of these words means something, by the way. The personal, infinite God is the absolute foundation. He is the perfectly just and loving creator. And we spent most of our week last week going through this. So I'm going to skip ahead here. He's, yeah, let me go back here. He's the sovereign creator. We went through. He is the personal creator. And the main point, God has an absolute, has an absolute claim on our lives as our personal, infinite creator. Even this rightful claim is expressed through perfect love. We were created to reflect and enjoy him. And that was the thing we hit last week. So, the second thing we began last week then is we began to talk about man, divinely created with dignity, yet broken, the sinful creature. And we talked a lot about the nature of man. 
divinely created good. Man is personal. We're personal like God. We're persons. Have you ever thought about God as a person? We're a person. Angels are persons. Demons are persons. Very interesting. Man is finite, yet in part self-transcendent. Basically meaning we're not a doorbell, right? We're just not programmed. We're not a programmed piece of machinery, which I think I emphasized last week slightly at least, is that that's the predominant view today, though, in the university and in our, our postmodern, modern, postmodern world is we're, we're just machinery. And we're saying, no, 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 there's something more to me than just my body. There's something more to me than just my brain. There's something behind here, my soul, my mind, right? Man has intelligence. Man understands morality. And that's fascinating that we just, I mean, a child understands morality. It's wired right into our souls. Man recognizes justice. And in weeks to come, we may talk about this, but I think this is one of the big doorways today, access points to talk about the gospel with people. Because even LGBTQ, transgender, all these things are really are about justice. They're going, wait, this is only fair. This is only right. This is only just. When they're marching in the streets, a gay pride parade, they're pri- they're, it, it, it's, it's, it's twisted, it's warped, don't misunderstand. But they think it's just what they're doing. So it becomes this wonderful doorway to be able to say, hey, you're interested in justice. I'm interested in justice too. Let's talk about that. And we'll get to that. But, but man recognizes this. It's in the soul of man. It's a, it's a great doorway. Uh, man is social. We're communicative. We're relational which is a reflection of the Trinity, by the way, which is really cool. Man is creative. Same thing like God. God creates out of nothing. We take stuff that God created and turn it into more stuff. And by the way, I speak to men's conferences a lot about that, this creative idea. It has a lot to do for all of us, but, but, but uh, Adam in the garden is about bringing order out of disorder. We go into a world, there's all these parts and pieces laying there, and we bring order to them. Al's laughing, right? All the wood, all the nails laying there, and you got to take them and turn them into something, right? And there's something right about that. Have you ever noticed that? Like when you build something good, you stand back and you look at it, man. You know, you play a great piece of music, wire a house, Terry, you get done, you hit the flip switch, and it works. Something satisfying about that. We've been created that way. That's man. And all I'm trying to say in all that, it's very good. All that's wonderful stuff. And we, of all people, should be like, ah, oh, about art about vocation, about work, about integrity with money. You know, the balance sheet comes out of all people in the world. We should be fascinated with that stuff as Christians. Psalm 8, 4, 6. What is man that you think of him, a son of man, that you are concerned about him, yet you've made him a little lower than God? Man, that's amazing. And you crown him with glory and majesty. You have him rule over the works of your hands. You have put everything under his feet. Now... We get to the next reality. So the first one was God is the personal, infinite God, creator, foundational premise, ultimate reality. And it's another way you can think about it. I ask people, what's the ultimate reality? If you can go back and find the most fundamental ultimate reality, what is it? It's God. God. That's where we start. <clears throat> then we begin to talk about man. And man is amazing, right? Very good. But now we get into something that's a great problem for us. And we all know this. Man is broken, man is sinful. Well, mankind is created good and amazing. There's something broken or disjointed in man. It's called sin, definition of sin. <clears throat> autonomy. You guys know that word autonomy? Like I sit here and think that the whole world revolves around me and I'm not contingent on anything else. 
Not true. <laughs> I can't even breathe unless God lets me breathe. I can't even have a thought unless God has me. You want to go down a road. Joe Harvey and I argue all the time. <laughs> Not argue, but we debate this. How do you even explain this? Because I can't even have a thought unless God lets me have a thought. I'm not autonomous. That's that's should just put us all in our place right there. <clears throat> but definition, autonomy, self-determined. We think we're self-determined. The finite man claims to be the beginning, premise, and center for the universe. Man attempts to irrationally become the source for knowledge, identity, purpose, meaning, love, truth, morality, creativity, beauty. This is a passionate and willful and irrational rebellion by refusing to accept reality. The reality, that is, that the personal infinite God is the source of all things. It is irrational in that man could somehow think he can control his world. Man cannot even control whether his heart beats or not. Man in his self-transcendent freedom willfully chooses to reject God as the ultimate source and authority of the universe. In doing so, man rejects God's commands, determining to do what he forbids. Romans 3, 10 through 8, as it is written, there is no one, no righteous person, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks out God. There are nobody, but nobody's running around seeking God. Talk about seekers, no such thing. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There's no one who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their path, and they have not known the way of peace. And the great kicker, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Pretty quiet in here, right? Sobering. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. Brokenness of man, there we have it, right? We see sin play itself out in playing God. Running our lives as if God did not matter, ignoring God, trying to be self-sufficient and self-made. Often this is a passive-aggressive posture towards God. Could even be, oh, I know God's there, but I'm going to do what I want to do. That makes sense? Passive aggressive. Just, I really don't care what God thinks. I'm going to do what I want to do. How about fighting God, actively violating and disregarding God and his law, wanting to decide for ourselves what is right and wrong? Lost in a sea of relativism, we cannot know what is true or moral based solely on ourselves. The result is a complete loss of any unity and knowledge in life. Seeing consistency, you'll see that when you talk to people sometimes even in our own lives. But if God is not the center, we don't have his truth at the center, at some point your entire framework and worldview has to break down and there'll be inconsistencies. It can't be consistent. It's impossible. <clears throat> Self-deception. This is a big one. It would be one thing that a person deceives lies to another. You know, I could lie to somebody. But the sinfulness of man actually places man in a place to deceive himself. Think about that. It's crazy, but an individual person can actually lie to himself, him or herself and believe it. James says, you can actually deceive yourself. See, when I, when I say something to you or lie to you or, you know, say half-truth, which is really a lie, right? I know I'm doing it. 
right? Like, imagine looking yourself in the mirror and telling yourself something that's absolutely not true, but you actually believe it. Pretty much the definition of insanity, isn't it? That's what sin does to us. We believe stuff about ourselves, which, by the way, I could preach about that all morning. That's why we need a community around us. That's why we have to have friends, because they see stuff sometimes we don't see or we're trying to cover up. I've got to have somebody that I can trust that says, this is what I actually see. Really. True for all of us. True for all of us. Consequences of sin. Death. Separation, right? Whenever sin is present, something is dying. This can regularly be seen in the conflict and entropy. Everything is in decay of the world. While it's most easily recognized in physical death, it is ultimately the result of spiritual death. Remember the garden? Once sin enters in, all the wheels start coming off. In this spiritual death, man is experiencing the results of the justice of God. A wrath, a right judgment. That's what we're experiencing. Judgment of God. We're all under judgment. We're all under a curse. Remember the garden? We get that sometimes. We don't like that. Try to ignore it. But we live in a world today that's under a curse. Because of man's sinfulness. That's why this is so stinking hard. <laughs> Everything we do is stinking hard. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Isn't that something? Suppress the truth. I don't know if you know that word. It means like holding down a spring. Like the natural thing is to jump up at you, and you got to work to hold it down. Now, I, I kind of joke about it, but it's why you don't find atheists in the jungle. I don't know if you know what I mean by that, but you can go to any anthropological study in the world, you know, into the deep tribes, primitive people. They're all, they all believe in God or gods. The only place you find atheists are behind big brick buildings where people have to work their brain over to try to convince themselves God doesn't exist. Suppress the truth. You have to literally push it down and hold it down because the natural thing, even for the guy running around in the middle of the Amazon jungle, is to go, wow. I said it last week. Somebody's been messing around, right? <laughs> I'm glad you laughed, but that's what it is, right, Mike? It's like everybody recognizes it. Now, they don't know. They don't have special revelation knowledge to tell them what that is, so they think maybe it's a bird god or 23 gods or something, but they know somebody's been messing around. So the only way you can deal with that is to suppress it. So what man does in his sinfulness, 623, for the wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, God's passive judgment. <clears throat> One way to consider this, and these are just ways to think about this. One way to consider this is that God created a moral universe. I had a friend tell me that years ago, and I like it. God created a moral universe, a reflection of his character, And like any law of the universe that cannot be altered, man cannot defy a moral universe. Can't defy it. You're going to pay a price for it. You're going to pay a price usually in relationships and all sorts of things. A good friend of mine who's a biblical counselor was sharing that with me. He said, people come in, they have this brokenness. You know somewhere, somewhere, there's some immoral something, something they believe, some lie they believe, something that started this ball rolling. Has to be. Because God created a world to work a certain way, and you defy it, there's going to be a consequence. That's what we mean by passive judgment. God created it this way. So a living death, this living death, and thus separation from God, is occurring this very day. 
as a result of our sin separating us from a relationship with God. <clears throat> this results in our experience of real guilt, loss of identity, purposelessness, a distorted and distorted relationships. We recognize this in, in the big word, I could have highlighted this more, is alienation. I want you to think about yourself. Think about the world you live in and even think about yourself. We actually within ourselves have an alienation. Everybody struggles with self-image. Everybody wonders, did I say too much? Did I say too little? I wonder what people think of me. Bah, 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 Every one of us in this room struggle with that. It's an alienation within ourselves. Isn't that crazy? And it's from sin. <clears throat> it's an alienation with ourselves, within ourselves, with others, with the creation around us, right? By the sweat of your brow, everything fights back. Everything fights back. My wife talks about weeds. She's these crazy things. They just get started, and you come back a few days later, and just, they just grow. Anybody that deals with a garden or a yard, I mean, they are crazy. You can't stop it. You can't get ahead of it, right? You can't, I mean, you can never get ahead of it. <clears throat> Creation around us, alienation. Ultimately, it's because we're alienated with God. So, God also has his active judgment. <clears throat> his active judgment. God has appointed man to live this life, then physically die and face perfect justice. God, the perfect judge, will render his verdict on our life. Were we perfectly righteous and holy? Or did we ever break God's perfect standard, his law? This is God's active judgment where no one gets off on a technicality. Which, by the way, I actually use a lot in evangelism. When we talk about justice, you can start talking to somebody you ever been gossiped about. Have you any, you've ever seen anybody get off in a court case? Have you ever seen something politically and you're thinking that person was guilty but they got off? Doesn't that bug you? I've never had anybody say it didn't bug me. Right? I said, isn't that awesome? Like, like, you know justice and it's frustrating, but guess what? There will be a day where that will be made absolutely perfect. There's a God, a personal infinite God who will deal with this perfectly and precisely. Isn't that awesome? But I say that to a non-Christian. And they're like, wow. And I said, but here's the problem. <laughs> I hear somebody laughing back there. What's the problem? I'm going to have to face the same justice. But can you see how that's a doorway to talk about the gospel? Now I'm right into the sin of man. You're going to have to face that justice, and I'm going to have to face that justice. And I'm going to be declared guilty. And you're going to be declared guilty. See how that is? See how it works? That's why this stuff is so important to get in our minds. God's act of judgment, eternal death. Death is the permanent penalty of our sin. The result is the separation of our souls from God forever. Hell, a real existence outside the presence of God, is a reality. It's a reality. Hebrews 9.27, And just as it is destined for people to die once, and after this comes judgment. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. Thessalonians 1.9, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Serious stuff. Matthew 7, 13 through 14, 21 through 23. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life, and there are few who find it. 
think we live in a culture that thinks, you ever been to a funeral in our culture? Pretty much everybody in our culture is assumed to go to some wonderful paradise place. There are few who find it. Very narrow. Again, should shake us a little bit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Leave me, you who practice lawlessness. Main point. We are self-deceived if we think we are living out of our own resources when we are dependent creatures and guilty rebels under judgment. We have no personal resources, efforts, affections, education, religious duty, etc. to help ourselves out of this mess. We have chosen to reject God. Though God's goodness, mercy, and grace are all still a constraining force in our world and actually still available to sinful man, frighteningly, one day, sooner than we like to think we will all face God's righteous judgment. And one day, his constraint will be removed from this world. Summary. Man is a personally created being on the high order of the image of God. He is higher than the rest of creation, yet lower than God. Man is personal, yet finite. He receives his identity by being in the right relationship to God the source and the final and absolute premise of all that exists. This means that man finds his identity or his fit, his longing for a relationship, his search for ultimate knowledge, his refuge from fear, his desire for justice, that which is right and holy, his longing for perfect unconditional love, his desire for meaning and purpose, his fascination and fulfillment and creativity and beauty, all from being in concert with the personal infinite God who's really there and has truly spoken. Everything man's looking for, the garden, is found in a relationship with God. It can't be found anywhere else. However, man has rebelled and rejected God and thus the very source for all that is good and right. This rebellion is called sin. Man does sinful acts because his very being is impregnated in sinfulness. In this sin, man is dead and separated from God. Thus, our entire being, our mind, our emotion, and our will is disjointed or broken. And there is nothing within man or man-made systems that can fix this catastrophe. Let me read that again. And there is nothing within man or man-made systems that can fix this catastrophe. So the question comes, what can we possibly do? You can't fix it. You can't go to church and fix it. What's going to happen? What are you going to do? Is there any hope? There you go. Third point, right? Once again, doesn't it kind of lead you to a sort of worship, even this morning in a little bit when we worship, it's like, like God actually did something about this? Yeah, he did. Christ, the perfect solution. Christ, the perfect solution. The divine teacher, Christ's words and life reveal that he was in the very nature of God. He is the word, which in the Greek language is the logos. This name means he's the very foundational premise of the entire universe from which all things have their origin. He is not some spiritual manifestation or mystical presence, as his life and work were displayed as rational, verifiable evidence in real time and real space, real history. He communicates to our conscience, and we submit to his authority in Scripture. He's the divine teacher. 
In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him, and apart from him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. Colossians 1, 15, 17, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. <coughs> For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I'm sitting here today, my cells are together somewhat, <laughs> right? I can't even, again, I can't say enough to you. We cannot even exist as a being apart from somehow the hand of God holding it together. All he's got is boom, and I cease to exist. Put us in our place, right? He's our sin bearer, our human representative. Jesus offered himself as the innocent man in substitutionary sacrifice for sin on behalf of all who acknowledge their sin. He took the guilt of sinners upon himself and endured judgment for it in his death on the cross. He lovingly and graciously paid with his innocent blood, which satisfies the justice of a holy God against sinful people. He, Jesus Christ, already existed in the form of God, and he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant servant, and being born in the likeness of men. <coughs> Jesus, second person of the Trinity, God, fully God, put on human skin, took the form, the likeness of a man. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And he was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time. You ever think about that? That's incredible. I mean, this whole thing is just full of evidence. I mean, Paul is, Paul, I mean, there's a lot to this passage. But this was almost like a creed. It's, it's set up in a form, and that's what Paul is saying. This was handed to me. And when he's saying this, he says, listen, there's still 500 people out there at least that have seen him alive. Go ask him. You want to believe what I'm saying? Go ask him. 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then he, to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely board, he appeared to me also, meaning Paul. He's the king. He rose from the dead. He conquered sin and death. And he ascended back to his father to be the Lord. His life of perfect obedience is now vindicated, and he freely and sovereignly gives his reward of righteousness to undeserving sinners. He dispenses grace, which is unmerited favor, to whom, whomever he will, and rules in love over all who trust in him. The king. Now when it was the evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut, where the disciples were together due to the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. 
Eight days later, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Remember this? Doubting Thomas? This is awesome. Because earlier on, Thomas says, I'm not going to believe it. Remember this? I'm not going to believe it unless I can put my fingers in his hands and put my hand in his side. I won't believe it. Well, eight days later, Jesus came. Doors have been shut, and he stood in their midst. Same thing. Peace be to you. And then he walked right over to Thomas. Imagine what Thomas is thinking. Hey, Thomas, put your finger here. You guys ever pick up on that? How did Jesus know that Thomas had said that? Because he's God. Imagine that. Thomas said, I won't believe it unless I put my finger there and my hand there. And Jesus walks right up and says, hey, Thomas, come here. I want you to put your finger here. <laughs> and, and take your hand and put it in my side. And do not continue to be in disbelief, but be a believer. Thomas answered, a monotheistic Jew, he only knows Old Testament Yahweh. Catch that, right? That's all he knows. God. Jewish man. That's all he knows. My Lord and my God. It's an amazing statement. The main point, Jesus as the only one who was fully God and fully man is the only provision. It's the only way to enter into life which is a reversal of death. There's no other way that the just and loving God, keeping consistent with his perfect nature, justly dealt with sinful man. Through Christ's life, death, and resurrection, he has demonstrated himself to be the Redeemer, the one who can take a rebellious man or woman and give them life. It's the only answer. I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except me. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. And there is salvation and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among mankind by which we must be saved. So how does Christ's death on the cross display both the justice and love of God? that you got to reconcile justice and you got to reconcile love how can you reconcile it one place in all of history it's been reconciled all at the same time a demonstration of love and a perfect demonstration of justice what a picture so in summary we have a couple more minutes here i want to try to bring these three points together before i'm going to come back next week and we'll jump in because we'll get to the point of saying what is man's response what do we do okay so summary three key points. First one is, so this is what I think about in the gospel, by the way. Again, this, we'll get into this in weeks to come when we talk about how we talk with people. <clears throat> but any setting I'm in, you know, and seriously, I've been in panels in universities, uh, you know, I, for, before COVID to go to the jail every single week. A bunch of guys pile in, they can ask us anything they want. Will Moneymaker, who hangs around here and went with me for a number of years, and he'd always say, you know, Redmond, at the end of the day, you're a one-trick pony. <laughs> I'm like, yep. It almost doesn't matter what they ask me. I'm going to go to one of these points. One of these points is the doorway to get me into what I want to really want to talk to them about. It's the gospel. Doesn't matter what they ask me. I want to answer their question, their honest questions. But even answering those questions, my mind is always going, how does it get me here? First one, the personal infinite God is the absolute foundation, the ultimate reality. He is the perfectly just and loving creator. Man is divinely created with dignity, yet broken as the sinful creature. 
Christ is the perfect solution. He's the divine teacher. He's our sin bearer, our representative, and he's the king. So, a lot I can tell you. I think we have about six, seven minutes left. We could take some questions. I will tell you one thing. I, I met with a bunch of guys. Terry, remember we used to meet with Dan Johnson and all the guys and Robbie. and We were going through this gospel with these guys. And I said, well, how are we going to remember this thing? <laughs> and I came up, I got a little file. It's still on my computer called Redneck Theology. <laughs> because these guys would come up with the coolest ways to think about these theological things. So Robbie Johnson is a guy we saw come to know the Lord. And I hope he shows up here someday and... Allowed Terry introduced me a bunch of his, I don't know, pagan friends. <laughs> anyway, it was a riot. We had a lot of fun with a lot of them. We're talking about this. How are you going to remember this? And Robbie says, GMC trucks. I said, what do you mean GMC trucks? God, man, Christ, trucks. Trucks sounds like trust. And we'll get to that next week. <laughs> and I've, I've, GMC trucks. You go up to those guys and say, what's the gospel? GMC trucks. Isn't that a kick? That's, that's how they remember it. It's a kick. It's just a kick. So anyway, yeah, Russell. A couple. I have. We have like four or five minutes. Go. I told enough of those last week. <laughs> no, any thoughts? Really, it's ten ten. We usually try to wrap up by ten fifteen, and I didn't want to jump into the next stuff next week. We could have, you know, I don't. We could have, but we're going to go to the last point next week and we'll pull all this together, thinking deeply about the gospel. Is there any thoughts, questions right now, since we have five minutes? Which, by the way, last week I did make a copy and they were here. And could you all help me? How many didn't get a copy or how many more copies do we need? Because, I mean, it's pretty hefty, but I'll, I'll make a bunch and bring them next week. Yeah, we can figure that out, right? Yeah, I'll Stephen, and maybe that's what we'll do too. You know, I could do that too somehow. We could post that, those notes somewhere, right? Then they could just copy it themselves if they wanted to download. Okay, we'll do that. Oh, that's a great question. I need some help with that one. <laughs> that's a great question. Well, I think because of our sinfulness, here would be my answer. Because of the depravity of man, which I really deeply believe in, that we're all depraved, we will seek out everything shy of God, short of God. We will try to appease something within us because we've been made in the image of God and we desire God. But I think what we'll do is we'll come up with a counterfeit that fits what we want it to be. Because we don't really want to bow to the true and living God and face him because of our fear, and I'm thinking of the garden, right? Our first reaction in the garden was to go hide. So even when God showed up and talked to Adam, you remember what he did, he blamed God, he blamed Eve. So there's a part of us that we, I would say, we sort of respond to God, but we really don't, because it's a game. And we play games with God like we saw in Matthew 7. We can even be, look like we're really religious. Very good. That's what I'm saying. You see, you could have answered it. 
Yeah, that's what we do. I actually think we do, right? We, we try to, we, even, sometimes we can even come to church to try to assuage our guilt, but what we really need is we need to stand before Jesus and be honest, be honest in our sin, be honest who we are. Uh, we could, yeah, I think we do. I think we do. I think it's, it, the big word in Scripture is pretense. I know I'm not as good as I should be, but I want you to think I'm better than I really am. There's something in this we all know. Yeah, Russell? Yeah. That's fair. That would be fair. In my, in my experience, maybe I'm feeling drawn to that, and I think it's me that's seeking, but at the end of the day, it's actually God drawing me. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I could see that. I could go there with you. I think, again... Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's fair. That's a fair thing. I think what we're trying to emphasize, right, theologically, is man is depraved. We're separated from God. We'll do everything we can to run from God unless he does something. Yeah, yeah, I think it's work of God, for sure. It has to be work of God. It's not a work of me. Any other thoughts this morning? Well, thanks. I'm a plagiarist. <laughs> I'm just telling, I'm telling you what the book says, right? <laughs> you guys go look. You'll see it. It's all there. <laughs> Very good. Hey, can I pray for you all? Lord, I do thank you. This is wonderful to worship you and to think of these truths that you've revealed to us. And may it stir us and sober us and even ask ourselves questions. Do I know you, Lord? Have I really bowed the knee? And that's true for all of us. And so... Um, Help us to be stirred by it, Lord, and excited that you revealed these wonderful truths to us. And we look forward to worship here in a bit, Lord. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, next week we'll wrap up my part, and then we'll hand it back to one of the other guys.